Hello, welcome to another episode of Sounds Like Comics, the podcast devoted to all things comic books in movies and TV. I'm Luke. And I'm Jay. Welcome to the podcast. Today's topic, the cult classic live action film, Flash Gordon. This is your warning. We will be talking spoilers. I watched this on Apple TV Plus, rented. Uh, I have to bring this up right on the top of the podcast because... I'm not sure if we mentioned it before, but in terms of streaming quality, Apple Plus is the highest quality streaming platform there is in terms of when you rent something or you watch something off there, they actually stream it in native 4K. That's where I rented this off, and it looks phenomenal. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> On my very expensive TV with my very expensive surround sound system, this movie looked incredible even my housemate walked in like what are you watching and i told him oh flash gordon from like the 80s the one with the queen soundtrack and he's like why does it look so good like it's 4k yeah that's why it looks such a bright movie as well like if you don't have it on dvd or or access to it on a streaming platform like we don't have it here in australia do yourself a favor if you're going to rent it, Apple TV, and same with if you're going to rent anything digitally. I don't like to put a plug like that on there, but that is just a fact that they had the highest streaming quality. And my God, did it look good. <laughs> Apple is my go-to as well. So what I've noticed, like even you can go elsewhere, whether it's YouTube, Prime, and you'll look. Yeah, I do, yeah. You look I at the bottom. Google quite a bit. And Google and Google Play, but at the bottom, it'll just come up standard definition. And for the same price on Apple, more often than not, you're going to get the HD version. Oh, it's good that you got to experience it that way. I streamed it on Stan. It was HD on there as well. I thought it was 4K, but it was it was HD, and it does look good, and it looked crisp. Yeah. Okay. But, but uh, getting that little, uh, yeah, we've got the plugs, technical <laughs> plugs out, out of the way. The, um, um, the movie. Yeah, yeah, the film. I, I've i seen bits of this film, it feels like my whole life. <laughs> like, I've always like, seen bits of it, just whether it's been on TV or whenever it's been on TV, really. But it's just a film that I'd always seen bits of. So piecing it together, I'd seen most of it, I would say. But watching it for this, probably like start to finish is the first time I've properly watched all of it. Yeah, I think I'm the same. I've been more familiar with it from just its own cult status. And the soundtrack. I imagine it's, yeah, and the, the soundtrack is, I mean, we all know it opens the movie with the Queen Flash theme. Um, but having the context for it now, because, I've again, I've seen, I th- it must be what it is like for other people when they say, oh, I've never watched Star Wars, but they live in a out the current world where it gets referenced so heavily that they feel like they've watched it. That was me with this. But then when you actually sit down and watch it start to finish, like, oh, that's how it all works. Characters had no idea existed, um, but very aware of bits and pieces from just the way uh, our culture works. Like the fact that Flash Gordon was a football player, a quarterback for the New York Jets. 
I was aware of that tidbit from this film, which is, of course, not the comic book origin, despite the fact the opening credits clips from the comic book strips from like or like the the comics history along with that phenomenal queen theme but yeah um a very interesting look at this uh cult classic i gotta say it was very interesting i did not know that this doctor character existed or any of the bits and pieces really (laughs) yourself (laughs) yeah um really quotable Brian Blessed, Gordon's alive. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, yeah. we, we all know that. Brian Blessed, in the, I mean, I was going to say in this, but just in general, Brian Blessed, whenever he turns up in anything, the guy has such a presence. And, and like me, he hails from Doncaster, South Yorkshire in the UK. So there you go. He's a fellow yeah. Donny lad. But wow, he has such a presence in this as a as was he leader of the Hawkmen? He's a Hawkman. Yeah. And that's Voltan. But yeah, the Hawkmen. All I could think every time I heard that said is Hawkman, Justice League member, Justice Society member. Absolutely. Like <laughs> DC Comics, yeah. That's that's even, the, even their costumes. Like, yeah, my brain was just like Panagarians. I don't know at what point they first appeared. Like it can't have been this film. Like I mean, the comic strips started in the thirties, and Flash Gordon yeah. then wasn't a football player; he was a polo player. So then they changed it, you know, <laughs> as the as the decades went on. No, it needs to be football. It needs to be more of a, a modern sport. Like an, an American, yeah. an American man would would play. So I guess changes. Polo puts him very much in an aristocratic role. Uh, and they wanted someone actiony and more of an everyman than a polo player. Like he's not one of the royals. <laughs> yeah, and that's it. You know the um, the producer sounds like a bit of a bit of a character. Dino De Laurentiis. He had previously overseen two other comic book adaptions: Danger Diabolique and Barbarella, both in nineteen sixty eight had held an interest in making Flash Gordon since the 60s. So he really wanted to get this made. George Lucas approached him. He wanted to make a Flash Gordon movie, declined, resulting in the creation of Star Wars. So there we go. George Lucas was told no. He went and made Star Wars. And then multiple directors, I think when they landed on Mike Hodges as the director, he was maybe the tenth person they'd they'd approached. So again, Laurentis definitely wanted to get this movie made. Uh, he had a particular vision. I mean, the approach to making this film was just so expensive, and for 1980 as well, and just the attention to detail, like for fashion, what characters are going to be wearing, like the the detail that wouldn't actually be picked up by the camera, but it was. It was there anyway. So they put a lot of money into it. The film was primarily filmed in Britain, including several sound stages at Elstree and Shepperton Studios. And it uses a camp style similar to the 1960s TV series Batman. So tonally, even though we're going from 66 to 80, 
you can see that there is there is a bit of a connection there. It's funny that you say that because while I was watching it, the thing that kept like shouting out in my brain is man, these costume design and a lot of this reminds me of the original Star Trek series from the mid 60s. Uh, right, how yeah. colorful it is, for one thing. Um, the fact that the women are wearing very little, uh, very reminiscent of some of the like the Orion slave girls is a classic from the uh, old school Star Trek. Um, that kind of go go girl aesthetic as well. Um, the yeah, it's just a lot of it shouted out to me. Um, even the other characters, um, specifically like Prince Baron and those like tree people whose race I don't think I've got written down, but they look very Robin Hood. They're uh their clothes and everything. But yeah, so much of it, my brain was just like it, it, was it was this all inspired by the original series Star Trek? Because that's I, I mean I I'm, I'm familiar with the symbolism and stuff of Ming the Merciless, um having grown up on Defenders of the Earth cartoon as a kid um but yeah so much of it was just so so 60s in my brain watching this it's it's funny that you say he's been trying he had been trying to make it since the 60s because i guess that's where george lucas fell down where george lucas was probably going to try and update it um yeah yeah could be because obviously star wars doesn't have that 60s look yeah maybe that's that's where the yeah, and he didn't want to go camp. He wanted to take it serious as it was serious for him when he was a fan. You know, and that that is a thing that like, because yeah, I mean, he is trying to do a serious thing. De Laurentiis, like, I don't know, it's kind of like as he was making this film, he didn't necessarily want it campy. You know, we're talking, even though it is extremely campy now, but back then though, it was the 60s, 70s, it came out in 1980. Um Again, like the costumes designs are are phenomenal, and you've got Timothy Dalton playing a Robin Hood type character, as you say, yeah, clearly modeling himself on Ewell Flynn. Like you're definitely yeah. getting a lot of that in his in his performance, and then having yeah, the whole thing so swashbuckly. It is, it is. But having like Queen, you know, so many songs featured on the soundtrack, and and that's like camp and pulpy and even you know brian blessed like he i've i've looked at a few interviews of him there's quite a few on youtube and and he was doing like his first scene and he's doing wham whack wallop and and he got he got pulled to one side we'll do the sound effects brian because he was just getting <laughs> so far into it. So he was embracing the campiness as well. He just seems like De Laurentiis was the last one to be like, oh, actually, this is the movie that we're making. And and again, like he wasn't completely on board with what Freddie Mercury and Brian May were doing. And then with the finished film, he'd gone to Brian May and said, that was good. You know, I liked that. <laughs> you know, I like yeah. I like what he did I think there. smart, smart to work. Uh acquiescence because i think of all the things of this movie the music's probably the most famous and it's the thing that's aged the uh 
I wouldn't say it's aged the best, but it's definitely the most recognizable oh, from everything ab- in this film. Absolutely. Even if people don't know this film, they know those songs, especially the the Flash theme. Sam J. Jones, like as Flash Gordon, like he I think it would have been like relatively early in his career. And I didn't know any of this. So you might not know this as well. That he had a dispute with De Laurentiis. Jones left the film prior to the end of principal photography, resulting in much of his dialogue being dubbed by another actor. The circumstances of Jones' departure from the project in his career in the aftermath of its release serve as the key subjects of the documentary Life After Flash which he had a huge period where he wasn't doing much of anything in the film industry. He got a call from Seth MacFarlane, the Ted movies that brought him back to Hollywood, but he had a huge period in between. And at the time he was getting advice from his representatives um, about money. And he did not, he thought it was the start of a negotiation. He went home to see his family for Christmas. He was waiting for that call to go back and finish the film. The call never happened. So they got somebody else to dub his lines to finish the movie. And this is like a whole thing. I didn't even know this was a thing. So I'd watched the movie. I'd done the prep for the podcast. And I'm like, ah, there's a documentary, Life After Flash. And I was like, I wonder if it's streaming anywhere. It is. It's on Binge. I watched it earlier yeah. today. It's a 90 minute documentary. It it goes into all of that, what happened behind the scenes and after, not just for Sam J. Jones, but for all the cast. Like it goes back and spends time with all of them. Wow, that's fascinating because I knew his career didn't really was well, I said other than Ted, where they just embraced him like whole hog. Because I guess Seth MacFarlane himself is like. He's that a big fan. Terrific. He wants to bring Why him didn't back. Anyone like do anything with this guy? Because he is genuinely so earnest, which is a, a big core of the characters. Is like, I can't leave these people. I've got to like do do something, whatever I can. Uh, and he's a great leading man. He's got the right presence. He's got like the right look i would have yeah like anyone of the time i would have been like oh this guy's gonna be big but yeah yeah because because of his size like six foot three he's a tall guy he's a big guy so there's a physicality to him because of that he did most of his own stunts so not only is it just the start of his acting career it's like his first big opportunity which unfortunately didn't lead to where they thought it was going to go. Like they were thinking we're going to get a trilogy out of this. It's only ever been this one film, merchandise, soundtracks, but shirt I've seen my oh, life. That's um, <laughs> that shirt. You know, like, I didn't know this. I came across this right. There's something about the shirt. And I don't think it's mentioned in the film. It was a gift from an anonymous female fan. Flash wore it a lot hoping he would eventually meet the woman again. Huh. That's what I found that's online. Apparently, 
That yeah, but apparently that's I mean, whether it's from a novel adapted from the film, I I don't know. But that's um yeah, apparently that's why he's got the flash shirt. But you're right, it is it's iconic. Yeah. It really is iconic. I've seen it. You know, the end of the film. No, let's jump back to the end right. and then we'll we'll go back. <laughs> Where Flash jumps towards the camera screaming, Yeah. Remember yeah. that the final the final yeah, shot of in the, the film in the, in the like shot of the, like the drone yeah the little robot drone thing that was improvised by Sam J Jones. Nobody could figure out how to end the film. They didn't know. They'd made the film. They didn't know how to end it. And then Jones said, "Here, let me try something." That's it. So it was bringing a lot to this film and is always going to be associated as being Flash Gordon and he's really big on the, the convention circuits. But just little things yeah. like that, like, you know, he's bringing something else to it. Like everyone's like looking around, scratching their heads. How do we end this thing? I got it. <laughs> and he just jumps yeah. up and goes, yeah, which is, yeah, it, it's which really makes sense easy, as well because they just, They've just like essentially survived this crazy yeah. adventure and won. But how else would you celebrate? It's a, it's a, it is it is a good way to end it. The beginning of the movie, yeah. the the end, they're on the plane, and then all of a sudden, the you know, there's aliens and everything else, and it's like we need to save these people. And his flashcard that you've said is so earnest, and he's like, "Yep, yeah, okay, let's do that." You know, he's yeah. not like losing his mind. Where are we? What is this place? He's just like, okay, yeah. let's get over it. And he's just like a normal guy, and he's gonna be, he's gonna be the hero. Yeah. Um, the Doctor Sarkov character, um, played by uh, Kaim Topol. I've got a ship, a rocket ship ready. And I figure this out. Everyone thinks I'm a nut, but I'm going to pull a, out a gun and get someone to launch this rocket. I mean, he was right. That's not the point. That's not the the issue. But I just like such a fascinating idea. Like, oh, I built a rocket. I mean, Elon Musk could learn something from this guy. <laughs> yeah. He had a rocket just sitting in yeah. his greenhouse, like uh, incredible. I mean, it looked good. It's like I like to bring that up. Yeah, special so, effects very reminiscent of the time. Yeah, uh, with what looks like you might be uh, old enough to remember this as well. Those the like glass plane things with like sand and uh, liquid. I was big in the in the, I think it was like the mid eighties, and you'd turn it. And it would like swish and make oh, patterns. Right. That reminds me of like a lot of the the sky and space scenes. This Which movie did look cool though, like red skies. It did look, yeah, yeah. They did have some cool visuals, but I mean, this is like it's a movie version of like those pulp serials, you know, the comic strips in the thirties. Yeah. That it did feel, you know, like what George Lucas wanted to do, and and what he did with Star Wars, you know, make like a big pulp film. And I think having those coloured skies, it yeah, it, it added to that. You know, just like Indiana Jones, which, you know, does, I mean, does obviously isn't as campy as this, but it's that pulp, you know, okay, so we're going to do yeah. like old-fashioned storytelling today. But, um, but just going back to 
Dr. Zarkov. So his backstory, he was a NASA scientist who was fired for his paranoid fantasies that Earth was going to be attacked from out space. Well, he was right. That's literally <laughs> what happens yeah. in this movie. But the, the actor, Topol, a lot of this I'm getting now is from that documentary that I watched. But yeah. De Laurentiis, he couldn't decide between Topol or Topol or another actor. And he just couldn't make up his mind. So do you know how he did it? He flipped a coin. <laughs> I love it. It's that, so that crazy. Is, honestly, this guy, like, he <laughs> was, like, really out there. The the director, Mike Nichols, years later, um, De Laurentiis told him, because, again, it was maybe the 10th person they approached or were talking to about directing that film. And he's like, why did you choose me out of everybody else to direct this film? And De Laurentiis said, I like to look at your face. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I mean, like such, yeah. such a character. Another thing with um, Brian Blessed, he was he was saying, because a lot of the cast, apparently, according to Blessed, were, cast and crew were a bit nervous around De Laurentiis. Like they were worried that doing something wrong, they might lose their jobs because it had happened to other people. And... Brian Blessed said to him, will you just fuck off? Because everybody <laughs> is so scared of you. Whenever you come around, we don't get much work done. Ah, Brian Blessed. What a, <laughs> what a character. I love the, the, the candor of like, mate, you're, you're stopping this movie from being filmed. Why don't you go off and you can hand your notes to the director? Yeah, that's it. Emperor Ming the Merciless, Max von Sydow. Shaved his head. The character had no hair, so therefore he was going to shave shave his head. Looks the part. Um his his costume like the the outfit that he's wearing weighed over 70 pounds. I'm he, not surprised. He could bet well, he could only stand in it for a few minutes. At a time, and to his credit, though, and he was sharing screen time with other actors. And even when he wasn't, he was his character was present, but he wasn't necessarily in shot. He would still be there, have the full outfit on, because he was wanting to give a, like a genuine performance. It's like yeah. just because the audience can't see me, you can see me, so I'm going to give you my all which I thought was pretty cool, especially when finding out how heavy his costume was. Yeah, because there's that first scene, you see him walk into frame and he comes up those stairs. I could tell straight away the way he was carrying himself. I'm like, you can see, almost see like he must have had a hike up the bottom to make it up the stairs so he didn't step on it. And then he did the, the Darth Vader, David Prowse thing where he got to the top of the stairs. Now it's a straight walk and it's long enough where he's not going to trip on it. And his hands go to his belt. And straight away, as soon as I saw that, I'm like, he's holding up that costume. <laughs> and I find out how heavy it is. I'm like, oh, well, now it makes even more sense. Safe to say that's what, what it is. I think from the sound of it, this is fairly different to a lot of the the roles that he'd had previously and playing this, you know, Ming, the merciless, you know, this big evil emperor guy, really theatrical. And he didn't quite 
know how to play it. So like he was getting from some advice, Brian Blessed and whoever else. And what he modeled his performance on, maybe to get into character to begin with, was that of a magician. And use your hands. Like, you no, know, just you're not having your hands down by your side or you know, do something. So when you first see him come out, you're right, he probably does have that moment where he's holding up his costume, but he's also waving his hands a little bit as he's talking. So it's quite theatrical. Yeah. And and just like demanding, you know, having a bit of a bit of a presence. But yeah, he, he plays the part really well. But I'm the same as you, my point of reference for this character, Defenders of the Earth. That's what I recognize yeah. Ming from. Yeah, where he's green and you know. There's a, I don't know if this is comes through from the original comic strips. There's, or might just be his name, but there's a uh, some of the the costume design and the iconography. There's a very strong like Asian influence, especially around China with the bold reds and gold. Um, I wonder if that's where that comes in from the time, especially you know the 30s. I kind of remember my. Only thing I can remember from that era was like the Boxer Rebellion in China. I'm like, is that is that where he came up with Ming the Merciless, or is it just a knowledge of like Genghis Khan and like other like strong um, like hi- historical figures that the creator pulled the name from? I mean, it worked. I mean, it's that alliteration of. Ming the Merciless and Peter Parker and Clark Kent and Lex. Yeah, it's got that very typical comic uh, book yeah. uh, alliteration. But yeah, I just always wondered that. And also, he's Emperor Ming, which you know, of course, China used to have an emperor. I'm like, is that where you got it from? I've always, yeah. I've always been curious, and I've never received an answer. I'm sure from it's, that one. I'm sure it's a Google search away, but uh... yeah. <laughs> But yeah, but it's it's a great name. It's it's a great it's a great visual, and the Hawkmen as well. Like look really cool, and as you say, they do look as though they're they're from Thanagar. But with the costumes and the wings, the actors they couldn't sit down because the costumes would hurt the backs, the harness, the wings, and everything else. According yeah. to Brian Blessed, he had to sit on a perch, which is hilarious. Like just, just seeing him perched like an actual bird, like wearing, yeah. wearing this wearing this costume. But again, like the costumes are fantastic. Um, Queen, like having Queen on the movies, I think they were approached in '79, is is incredible. Another review we did fairly recently, Highlander, Queen are on yeah. there. I always find it interesting when we have these overlaps and sometimes unintentional. Like this is the first time we've ever talked about Brian Blessed in one of these reviews where our next review is going to be Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Brian Blessed is in that as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny it's, when I thought that was crazy as well when I'm writing up my notes. I'm like, wait, Brian Blessed? I just watched him. Uh, Over 200 episodes. We've never talked about Brian Blessed until now yet. This review, the next review. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's... I do see the special effects, how they must have been pulled off. I'm not sure if you notice as well, because of just the high quality of, of stream, but you could see like the, the ghost imagery as they had to, whatever object was in front of the, the background, 
you could see like the outlines yep. as they went through what was the solid. So I'm guessing there was it was using mirrors rather than the ILM technique of uh, blue screen and yeah. compositing and that kind of thing. But yeah, in harnesses and, and all of that. What, what I think when watching it, because you're right, the colors really pop, especially watching it now in, in HD and 4K, the, the film's got an ability to look both cheap and good at the same time. Yeah. And often you can, I can see how they've done that, or the way that vehicles are flying through the air, and there's no real, it's less that they're, they're moving than they're just being pulled. Like, you know, yeah. like when, well, there's, there's, there's a charm, like most of this film, there's a charm to it. The, the visuals, the costumes, and, and the music, you, you can't, you know, overstate. Like Queen, like they contributed so much to this film and it's not just the flash theme it's all of it all the songs that are included in this it's but just see it look as good as it does like you know your experience renting it and how good it it looks today a film that was released in in 1980 and flash gordon as a character i'm so glad that we've finally got to him because we've reviewed films based on other pulp characters like the phantom the shadow the rocketeer uh, Dark Man, Zorro, all these other characters. Where here we are reviewing Flash Gordon, a character that predates Superman, a character that is referred to as the grandfather of superheroes. Like he predates all of them. John Carter, another one that yeah. we did. Oh, yeah, and I can understand. You know, they've tried. I think. It it must have been like the mid to late 2000s, a live action TV series of Flash Gordon starring uh, uh, the Eric Johnson, Whitney and Smallville. Yep. Eric Johnson. Uh, that, nah, that was not, that was not good. I, I gave it a handful of episodes and it was nothing like this and it wasn't trying to be, but it was like yeah. a CW, I think it was a CW show, but it was WB. that. Right. Okay. Which became. C- yeah, CW. The, the, yeah, the precursor. But seeing this movie, when you've got your uh, you've got your princess aura, and you've got your Prince Baron and Prince Volton, who have the obvious like um, rivalries, and you've got Clytus, the evil like head of security, kind of in the like the the granny goodness, like dark side esque area um i'm like what i can understand why so many people have like made the attempts but no one's gotten as close as this in all and they, they did this like you know 50 years ago no well it's not that old 40 over 40 years ago now 43 years ago like i can like i'm actually shocked no one's had a real good go especially in this era yeah doing it again well, this, this this still works for me today because it's the film that they made then and it works then and it still plays today, whereas just like the Eric Johnson show, you can't do that again. You can't do that now. You can watch that now and still enjoy it now, but you can't approach it that way. Or I suppose, you know, James Gunn, Guardians of the Galaxy, Taika Wahiti, Thor Ragnarok, Love and Thunder, maybe that's that kind of borrows from it, but at the same time, I don't know. Like, I don't even know how they would do Flash Gordon 
again today. I mean, Surely we like as a serial, not a film. But I was going to say we liked the John Carter film. We yeah, Taylor Kitsch. That was good. Yeah, but I think not many people watched it, and it didn't do well at the box office. It's, it's kind of like, do audiences want to see Flash Gordon or John Carter again? Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I guess it brings us to our reviews. Yeah, we can we can rate it. I I'll go first on this one. I'm going to come in. I, you know what? I'm going to come in at a at a four out of five. Now, since this is the first time I've had a full run through, watched it, enjoyed the experience, and everything else, it's not something that I can see myself going back to on a regular basis. But you know, it's a it's a good film. It it is it's a good film. It's bonkers, and you know what you're seeing on screen is bonkers. But then you're hearing about all the behind scenes. Behind the scenes shenanigans, you know, there's a lot going on there as well. Um, the visuals, the cast, I mean, Sam J. Jones is perfect as Flash Gordon. The Queen yeah. soundtrack is fantastic. There is so much to like. So, yeah, four out of five. How about yourself? I'm also going to come in out of four out of five. I mean, I understand completely why this is such a cult classic. The visuals, the music, uh, especially now that it's aged really well it's very much a product of its time but in the best of ways where it's you know you've got you know melody anderson who played dale uh and you've got ornella moody who played princess aura everyone everyone's coming out with an earnestness and an energy Uh, again the costumes really pop the sets pop it it's what i think of when i think of pop art you know, this is it in a nutshell. Um, that, like you said, with uh, Guardians and the Taiko Titi Thor movies, it's still in vogue. If it's when it's done correctly, it, it always wins people over. And I, I just really enjoyed it. Had a great time. You know who's a big fan of Flash Gordon and this film? Alex Ross. Yeah, if you look online, he's done a lot of art, and even like his logo for his website, it's got the Flash Gordon symbol in between his name, and he featured on that documentary as well, Life After Flash. But yeah, yeah, so there we go. That is our episode all about Flash Gordon. If you'd like to contact us about this episode or suggest a topic for an upcoming episode, you can find us on Facebook as Sounds Like Comics Podcast. You've been listening to Luke and Jay, the guys from Sounds Like Comics. See you soon.